Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Logan Blackman Show, the best show you've never listened to. I hope you all are having a fantastic day, because I'm, I'm having a decent day. Busy day at the actual job, but, but nice day overall in the world of sports for yours truly. And the just the, the pure confusion that is in my head right now and revolving it revolves around my sports teams and two teams in particular, the Chicago Blackhawks and the Chicago Bulls. I don't know what what happened this offseason because all of a sudden it went from oh, I, we might be going for a lottery pick to we might are we trying to compete? Are the Blackhawks and the Bulls, are they trying to compete this next season? Because, good lord, they're making moves like they're acting. They're trying to. The Blackhawks, we talked about getting Seth Jones from Columbus. Over, overpaying, but got Seth Jones from Columbus. You got Marc-Andre Fleury. You got Tyler Johnson for nothing, basically. Brent Seabrook's already retired, so if Brent Seabrook, God forbid, comes out of retirement, he'd be playing for the Lightning. They traded a, a prospect for Fleury, who apparently is going to be playing in the Blackhawks organization, so it's like they just... Got the Knights just gave the Hawks flurry for free, and they still got Patrick Kane, Kirby Doc, Taves is still I think rearing to play. They got a defender too. Who they Jake McCabe from the Sabers. So they're the Blackhawks are trying to do something or be at least decent from what they've used to what they've been recently. They're trying to be decent. They're trying to be a playoff team this year. The Chicago Bulls exact same thing, but I think the Bulls are moving a little more supersonic. Then the Chicago Blackhawks are, if you look at some of the moves they've made, getting Lonzo Ball from the Pelicans, not really giving up a lot, giving him a decent-sized contract, but not giving up a lot to get him. Weirdly signing Alex Caruso. Didn't understand that one at all, other than the meme purposes there. But that one doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. And then today, trading for DeMar DeRozan from the San Antonio Spurs. Gave up a little bit to get him, but the Bulls. Good Lord. If you want to watch some fun basketball, watch the Chicago Bulls this year. If you want to watch good defensive basketball, I would recommend not watching the Chicago Bulls this year. I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, their starting line is pretty straightforward, in my opinion. Lonzo Ball at the point guard, Zach Levine at the shooting guard, DeMar Rosen at the three, Patty Williams at the four, and Nikola Vucevic at the five. This could have all been solved if the Bulls just drafted Tyrese Halliburton last year, which is exactly why, if you go back to last year's NBA draft, when I did a little mock draft with little to no knowledge of what was going to go on to the NBA draft, other than what the Chicago Bulls were doing, I got the first three picks exactly right, and then it was a crapshoot for the Bulls. That was where the draft, quote-unquote, started. You know you have those once a year. One, It feels like every draft there's a, a spot where it starts the draft. Like, this year, for the NFL, you had the Jaguars and Jets. You knew exactly what they were going to do. They were going to draft Trevor Lawrence, number one, Zach Wilson, number two. That was exactly how it was going to go. The 49ers realistically started the draft because of the fact we didn't know if they were going to draft Mac Jones or Trey Lance. In hindsight, you should have just gone, okay, we're going to pick the most athletic, rawest quarterback that has the higher ceiling, which is the guy they took, Trey Lance, which there was a video going around Twitter today of Trey Lance throwing a ball in practice that... Got some people on the internet hyped, even though it was just a normal throw. But that's, that's, that's beside the point. It's beside the point. Trey Lance is fun to watch. And then last year, for the NBA draft, you had the Chicago Bulls. You had the Timberwolves, Warriors, and the Hornets picking one, two, three. General idea of what they were going to do. Timberwolves are going to go Anthony Edwards. Then it was James Weissman and Lamelo Ball. My 
hope was for LaMelo Ball to somehow fall to number four. That wasn't happening, but it was like one of those pipe dreams. You're like, oh, this is the guy I want. If he were to fall to four, this would be awesome. Like my friend Noah, he's a Magic fan, watching Jalen Suggs fall to number five in this year's draft and just falling right into their laps. That's what I wanted for LaMelo Ball last year. This year, they got his brother, (laughs) who is not as good, but still a good point guard in the NBA. And Tyrese Halliburton, why I wanted him is the same reason why the Bulls went out and got Lonzo Ball this offseason. Because it's a ball or pass-first point guard. Tyrese Halliburton is that. He can shoot the three, play defense, pass the ball. That is what I wanted. I wanted Kobe White to be that Jamal Crawford player off the bench. The one thing Jim Boylan got right about the Chicago Bulls was saying that he thinks Kobe White should be that Jamal Crawford player. He is exactly right about that. It's the only thing he got right in the Bulls. But it's a big thing to get right, because this could shape how the Bulls play for the rest of their, at least the next five years, at least. But getting Lonzo was big. This allows the Bulls players to just shoot. Levine, Kobe, DeMar DeRozan, these types of players. This frees up space for them. But again, defensively, it's going to be a struggle. The Bulls might lead the league in scoring this year, but they also might lead the league in points allowed this year. (laughs) That's the kind of team this is going to look like. Because Levine's not a great defender. He's gotten better as a defender, but he's not top-tier defender to where you can just have a bunch of offensive players and no defense. Patty Williams, great defender. He's really the only defender I can think of at the top of my head with the Bulls. <laughs> Patrick Williams. Vucevic is suspect on defense. DeMar can be good defender. Lonzo, all right defender, but it's not like no one's really locked down. There's not one, other than, again, Patrick Williams, there's not really that one guy you, I, I don't know. It'll be fun. That's all I know. The Crusoe thing was weird. I love that they got Io DeSumo from Illinois. Great one-two combo guard option, which makes it even more confusing why they went out and got Alice Caruso because if you knew you were going to sign Lonzo, which has been talked about since last season, why did you go and get Caruso if you just drafted Io DeSumo? Because you're going to have Kobe playing that combo guard option. DeSumo's going to be playing that combo guard option. Caruso's a combo guard, kind of. But, I don't know. It's confusing. It strikes a lot of the Tyler Johnson thing. The NBA Tyler Johnson, not the hockey Tyler Johnson, that signed a massive deal in Miami. I think Caruso signed, what, a $35 million deal or something like that? Which, fair play to these players for getting the money. You are Your value is what the market allows. That's pretty much what it is in the NBA because they get a crap ton of money. <laughs> Average player. Felicio, Cristiano Felicio, fleeced the Chicago Bulls a few years ago. That first offseason was like the massive free agent deals. Felicio was one of the first players to sign. I think he's played probably 10 games since that signing. And this was three or four years ago. <laughs> so that's how you call finessing the market. But hey, fair play to them. I'm excited to see what the Bulls do though. I didn't really watch a lot of the NBA these past couple years because the Bulls have been pretty cancer to watch. The Bulls though, with Zach Levine... He was one of those players that you would turn on and go, oh, this is what I want to watch. I'm not really watching the team. I'm watching Zach Levine. That's what I'm turning on for. Marketing's been frustrating. Kobe White can be very frustrating. Wendell Carter was frustrating before they shipped him off to Orlando and shipped off Otto Porter's contract as well. But the big issue with this, let's just say hypothetically, this doesn't work out. That DeMar, Lonzo, Caruso, they're not the greatest signings, they don't turn out as good as they can. They What you're expecting to. Because DeMar, you're expecting to score a crap ton of points. Lonzo, you're expecting to get close to a triple-double. 
Crusoe is just there for meme purposes. If it doesn't work out, they have no draft picks. They didn't have any draft picks this last year's draft other than the second round pick, which they took to Sumo because they traded their picks to the Magic. Now they've got a first round pick shipped off to San Antonio for DeMar DeRozan. So if this doesn't work out, ah, what am I talking It's going to work. Of course it's going to work. <laughs> you got to talk yourselves. And it's just very exciting. It's very exciting to have an organization or people within the organization that want a winner or want to try and build a winner. I'm not going to try and pronounce his name because I have been terrible at it. But Art, he's the president of basketball. I can't remember. What is it? Basketball. It's something. He's senior president of basketball operations or something like that. He built the Nuggets to what we know now. I want that to be the same thing for the Bulls. And if DeMar DeRozan, Lonzo Ball turn out beautifully, perfect. I trust him. I've trusted everything he's done so far, and it's worked out fairly nice to this point. You can make the argument of you should have gone Tyrese Halliburton over Patrick Williams, but it's not like there's a massive drop-off there. Patrick Williams is still one of the best rookies of this last year's class. It's not like he was Anthony Bennett-level bad, and Tyrese Halliburton was... What, who's a really good rookie? Camarlo Anthony. Good. I don't I don't know. I'm just the first rookie that came in my head. And speaking of Melo, the Lakers are getting weird, I guess. They made the trade for Russell Westbrook at the night of the draft, which on the face of it, it goes, okay, LeBron, AD, Russell Westbrook. That looks good. And it should be good. I'm worried about the shooters, though. <laughs> That's a, you got Wayne Ellington. You got Melo. Dwight Howard's back. So they made a couple few they made a few other additions to the team. They're an older team now, and people are calling them a nursing home and stuff like that. But they still got a big three of AD, Russell Westbrook, and LeBron James. Like, you can get as old as you want. You still have three of the best players in the NBA. <laughs> Opinions can be split on Russell Westbrook, but he is a really good basketball player, just putting it lightly. But yeah. I'm excited to see what the Bulls do this year. I always, my friend Spencer and I, we talk a lot about our teams because we're a fan of most of the same teams apart from our NFL teams. He's a Bears fan. I'm a Bills fan. But we're, we've are we been Cubs fans for together since high. We've been, ever since I've known Spencer, we have just taught Cubs. That was what we kind of bonded on. Bonded on the Bulls as well. So it was, it was a nice thing to, it helps make friends. So if you don't want to watch sports for the fun, do it. For the social aspect of it, I guess. <laughs> ah, man. But Spencer and I have been talking a lot of back and forth this past week because of the whole Cubs trade situation with the Bryant, Rizzo, Baez, Marcinic, Mariznick, Trevor Williams. Who else did they freaking trade? They traded everybody, but <laughs> just more players. I, I don't know. Depressing stuff. But hey, Rafael Ortega looks freaking good. At this point in time, he's been like 319 now. He had three home runs in the last game for the Cubs. He had four hits, five of the hits. Cubs had five hits as a team, okay? Four hits for Rafael Ortega, three of them being home runs. And they still still lost the game. Oh, man, it's going to be fun. One team, one team had to get bad before the others to get good, right? That's how it kind of worked out. The Cubs were good. Bulls and Blackhawks were bad. Now, there was a time where the Cubs and Blackhawks were pretty good. Bulls were pretty good in the early 2000s. Blackhawks were or early 2010s. Blackhawks were good in the early 2010s. And then the Cubs got good. And the other two teams started to die off a little bit. And then once the Cubs got bad, now the Blackhawks and Bulls are starting to make moves again. So maybe it's just like that. You can't have one good team. Yeah, I can't have all good teams. 
you got to have some bad teams in there, and that's what's happening with the the current sports scene in Chicago. Good Lord. But it's fun. It's very fun. And going off of soccer, or uh, soccer, sorry, <laughs> going off of basketball, which we don't really talk about a lot on this show, rarely ever, the Gold Cup team, the Gold Cup team of the tournament was just announced today. So there's not a few, there's a few surprising omissions from this team. Like Kellen Acosta is not in the team who, to be fair, played better as the tournament went on. He obviously gave up the lone goal. He can be at fault for that goal against Martinique because the only goal that they scored the entire turn or allowed the entire tournament was a penalty fouled by get given by Kellen Acosta. But the goalie, Matt Turner, unsurprisingly, he won the gold glove. He's obviously going to be in the team of the tournament. You had Shaq Moore making the team of the tournament as well. Won two men of the matches for the United States. Started every game apart from the final just because he was tired. And he eventually came on. Great attacking back. He's been awesome. He had a fantastic tournament. Miles Robinson, unsurprisingly, made the team of the tournament as well. The three best players for the United States. You could argue Kellen Acosta in there, but those were three of the best players. Three of the top four best players of the team made this team of the tournament. Okay? That's good. Perfect stuff. And then Hector Moreno, the captain for Mexico, made it. Omar, Homan Ahmad from Qatar made the term, team of the tournament as well. Steve Stefan Eustachio from Canada scored an amazing free kick. I think it was against Haiti. Great free kick from Stefan Eustachio. Hector Herrera, he was the player of the tournament, is in the team. Abdulaziz Hatim, who I believe got robbed of the goal of the tournament for that goal that he scored against El Salvador in the knockout stage. That should have been goal of the tournament. We talked about it in the video where he cuts it on his left, reverses, cuts back on his right, and just plays it not where you're supposed to play it, pretty much. When you cut back on your right, you're trying to play it towards that near post, not the far post with your right foot. If you're taking that with the, to the far post, you try to cut it on your left foot, not go all the way across the goal. Either way, he deserves to be a team of the tournament. He scored three goals, not really a goal scorer for Qatar. Scored three goals, scored, scored in my opinion, the goal of the tournament. And yeah, Akram Afif made the team of the tournament as well, I believe. Now, I could be wrong. At the time of the United States-Qatar game, he was joint top on assists in the tournament. So I don't know if he ended up finishing on that. I mean, I would assume so, but Mexico-Canada happened, so I don't know. it. Uh, Alamez Ali, golden boot winner, four goals team of the tournament as well and then finally Orbelin Pineda leading scorer for Mexico this tournament like it was a, you can't really complain about any of these team these any of these people picked in this team I mean you can make the argument for like Eustachio for Kellen Acosta you could definitely make that argument but I think overall this is a team that most people can agree on okay this is a team that it's not going to divide opinions you know like some team of the tournaments, you can have, oh man, this person should have made the team of the tournament. Not this person, this guy was so much better this tournament. You don't really have that. Most of these positions are pretty locked down and all of them played, well, that's why they're in the team of the tournament. And this brings up a point that I want to talk about because the three players in this team of the tournament, for the United States anyways, are in heated position battles that maybe before the Gold Cup, we didn't really think about or give a lot of thought to Matt Turner, Shaq Moore, and Miles Robinson. We'll start with we'll start with Matt Turner first because he's been the best player for the United States in this tournament. Allowed one goal, Golden Glove winner, best goalie of the tournament, and he is now knocking on the door of Zach Steffen's number one spot. 
for something that I thought was locked up, done and dusted, it is it is open. <laughs> Zach Steffen, after the United States-Mexico game in the CONCACAF Nations League, when he went out hurt, and then Ethan Horvath saves the penalty. That kind of got brought up that there's an open competition now. But we romanticized the penalty save a little bit. Like, he was in for... What was the total number of minutes? I, he wasn't in for that long, just put it like that. Ethan Horvath was not challenging for that, but that penalty save made him challenge for that. And then now that Matt Turner has played this amazing tournament score, allowing one goal, he's now Zach Steffen's biggest challenger, which is kind of a thing of romanticizing the situation while also showing recency bias, because in the CONCAF Nations League final, Horvath was the challenger to Steffen after a penalty save. Now after the Gold Cup, Turner's number two and challenging Zach Steffen. So when Zach Steffen plays next, whenever it is, he'll be in the World Cup qualifier team because I think Greg Berhalter still rates him as the number one goalie. He's given the captain's armband a ton. He's been very consistent in net. Even though Turner had a great tournament, Zach Steffen is still the number one for the United States at this point in time. Now that is subject to change. It's not my opinion. I'm trying to give what Greg Berhalter would do. Now if I were to give my opinion, I say Zach Steffen hasn't done anything to lose the job. He hasn't played. Like if he if they were in the same team and Turner outplayed Stefan, then that's fine. Then you can make that argument. But now that Zach Stefan hasn't really played, the last two goalkeepers we've seen for the United States are Matt Turner and Ethan Horvath. So I would like to get Zach Stefan back in the team before we start actually talking about if Matt Turner is taking the job from Zach Stefan. Because I don't really think Zach Steffen's done anything to necessarily lose the job. Now that can be that can be uh controversial. I guess, because I said the same thing with Georgia's quarterback situation with Justin Fields and Jake Fromm, which is exactly what Kirby Smart was thinking. Justin Fe- or Jake Fromm just led Georgia to the national championship game as a freshman. Sure, Justin Fields is the number one overall high school recruit, joint number one high school overall recruit with Trevor Lawrence, but Jake Fromm hasn't lost the job. So why would we give the job to Justin Fields if Jake Fromm didn't do anything to lose it? So that could be a situation you look at where the better player ended up leaving. Now, Matt Turner is not leaving the United States, unlike David Ochoa, who has announced, sadly, that he's leaving the United States for Mexico, representing the United States at all underage levels, was on the Olympic qualifying squad, was a part of the team that beat Mexico in the CONCACAF Nations League final. But you look at the current goalkeeping situation for the United States and the current goalkeeping situation for Mexico, it's going to be easier to break into the Mexican national team as far as goalies are concerned. Because all their main goalies, their top three goalies, at least their top two, for sure. I can name their top two for sure. Talavera and Ochoa are well on the wrong side of 30. They're on the wrong side of 35. And the goalie after that is also on the wrong side of 30. Ochoa is 19, 20, somewhere around there. Here's a real chance to be Mexico's eventual number one. Now it's going to be awkward. He did just celebrate the United States beating Mexico in the CONCACAF Nation League final. And now he's going to go represent the United States. But if you just look at it at the face of it, Zach Steffen's relatively young. Matt Turner's relatively young. Ethan Horvath's relatively young. Like, you got these young goalies, and they're going to be pretty locked in. You're going to be the next Nick Romando, which is not anything bad to be. Nick Romando is one of the greatest goalies, if not the greatest goalie in MLS history. But you just don't want to... You want to be challenging for a starting spot. And on Mexico, David Ochoa can do that. The United States, he probably won't be. Because unless something insane happens, 
Stefan, Turner, and Horvath are the three goalies that will be going to Qatar in 2022. And whatever order you want to make it, that's who the three are. Unless I see something different, other like Sean Johnson gets a good run of form with NYCFCs. Greg Berhalter's liked bringing him on as a third-choice goalie in these tournaments. Uh, Brad Guzan, I don't really think he's going to be in, involved there, but I think him and Johnson, two very experienced goalkeepers, are nice to boost Matt Turner, who has played one cap before this tournament started. So that was big for them. Tim Millie is also in there, but he's 34. He's not going to get a chance in the national team anytime soon. There's some other young goalies in there, but it's Stefan Horvath and Turner. And whether you think Horvath, or not Horvath, Turner is going to top Zach Stefan at some point, the fact of the matter is, I think Greg Berhalter is still going to stick with Stefan. Until Zach Stefan does something horrendous, it's going to be Zach Stefan's job to lose. Up until 2022. Turner is going to have to put out some master performances to get above Stefan. Because again, Stefan hasn't played recently. The last two goals we've seen are Turner and Horvath. Horvath saved the penalty, Turner had a great tournament. Recently, Bias says Turner passed Stefan. Recently, Bias also said Horvath passed Stefan. So we got to stop romanticizing these things and go, let's see what Stefan does. <laughs> He's been entrusted with the captain's armband numerous times for the United States. He's the number one still. And then going down the list is Shaq Moore. And this isn't with Sergio Dest, who is one of the locks for the United States going to the World Cup. There's a few locks on this roster that I can say for 100% certainty are going. And those players are Stefan, Turner, Sergio Dest. I would say Anthony Robinson's up there as well. Tyler Adams, Weston McKinney, Christian Pulisic, and Jayassi Zardes, and Giovanni Reyna. So there's eight players I would say are locks to go to the 2022 World Cup. Maybe you could argue a few people. Maybe Zardes isn't necessarily a lock. Maybe Robinson isn't a lock either. But I think those guys are the top of their positions currently. And a left back for Robinson especially, there's not a lot of depth there. So he's pretty far. He's pretty clear in regards to the left back spot, at least in my opinion. But Moore is not challenging with Dest. Okay? Moore is challenging with Reggie Cannon, who he started over in the 2021 Gold Cup. But... You have to remember, it wasn't... I mean, it eventually became, Shaq Moore's playing great, we can't bench him, we can't justify benching him at this point. He's played too well. It started because Reggie Cannon got hurt. Reggie Cannon missed the first game through a hamstring injury, didn't play until the Canada game, and came on after 60-something minutes, I think. And Reggie Cannon was gradually getting his fitness back and eventually started the game against Mexico, but we knew he was going to get subbed out. You knew George Bello was going to get subbed out as well. Sam Vines... And Shaq Moore started the entire tournament together, except for that game against Martinique where George Bello played. But it's between Cannon and Moore. Before this tournament, the top three right backs for the United States were Dest, Cannon, and Yedlin. DeAndre Yedlin somehow found his way back to the United States men's national team. Now, it's Dest, Cannon, Moore. And I'm thinking, much like Stefan, I think Reggie Cannon... Even though Moore is in the team of the tournament, is still the number two guy behind Dest. And the reasoning behind that, I think what Greg Berhalter is going to look at here is the fact that Cannon, or not Cannon, uh, Moore and Dest are very similar styles of players. Bombing forward, 
can are, are capable defenders. They're not like miserable defenders, but Cannon is the best defending right back the United States has. Out of the four that I just mentioned, Cannon's the one that you would go probably defense first. You can't more Dest, Yedlin especially are all attack-minded fullbacks, which is not a bad thing to be. If the United States were to go with a 3-4-3 like they did against Mexico in the CONCACAF Nations League final, that'd be perfect, which I think is definitely a formation the United States could run with at the 2022 World Cup. I like that formation a lot that Greg Berhalter runs. You got a, a front three of Pulisic, Zardes, and Reyna with McKinney and Adams in midfield with Dest and probably Robinson at the other back and then figuring out a back three later. But yeah, Moore's definitely closed the gap. I don't think he's passed him yet. I think it will be easier, though, for Shaq Moore to pass Reggie Cannon because he's not trying to overtake a starter. Matt Turner's trying to take over Zach Steffen, who's been the United States' unquestioned number one for the past two or three years. Cannon has been the backup to Dest for the past two years, well, ever since Dest said he was playing for the United States. So that would be a little bit easier for Shaq Moore to make up that ground. Because I think it's just a little bit separating the two. Moore and Cannon. That one you could split opinions on. I th- Well, Cannon and Moore will not, I guess, get as much attention as Turner Steffen. Because it's, again, for a starting berth, not a backup spot. But yeah. If they go with the 3-4-3, I think Moore is the better option. But if you're going with a standard 4-3-3, Cannon's the better option, if that makes sense. And then moving on to the center back spot with Miles Robinson, this one is weird because there's really... The the competition's the field. (laughs) We know who one center back is for the United States in 2022, and that is John Brooks, who has been the United States' best center back for the better part of six to seven years. Ever since 2014, really, John Brooks has been the best center back the United States has. And pretty unquestioned, if I do say so myself. Next to John Brooks, though, you have seen a a ton of different center backs. He has had a ton of different center back partners. He's trying to find, Berhalter's trying to find the right one to fit next to John Brooks. And that one might be Miles Robinson. Because out of all the center backs the United States has played with, just in the better part of two years, let's let's narrow it down a little bit. For the better part of two years, the center backs the United States has played with, none have had performances like Miles Robinson did in the 2021 Gold Cup. And that's not even that's excluding the goals. We talked about the games in Qatar against Jamaica, where he had to bail out James Sands a few times. He has great recovery, and he's just a very natural defender. Against Qatar, James Sands gave up the penalty. He almost scored an own goal as well. Against Jamaica, James Sands fell over a couple times. Miles Robinson had the track back really fast. Right now, I think Miles Robinson is the best center back next to John Brooks for the United States. Because the other center backs the United States have are Chris Richards, who is at Bayern Munich right now, who needs playing time, whether that's at Hoffenheim or somehow breaks into the Bayern Munich first team. Then you've got Mark McKenzie, who was in a lot of fans' favor, prior to the gold uh, to the CONCACAF Nation League final, where he gave up the penalty. That one was a little controversial, but he was at fault for the first goal for Mexico, which lasted in, like, what, the first two minutes of the game or something? But that was one that fans kind of turned their back a little bit, but he is young. He's still growing. He's getting consistent playing time, or pretty consistent playing time over in Genk, over in Belgium. 
Then you got Aaron Long, who I think Greg Berhalter really likes. And if you're up to Greg Berhalter, Aaron Long's probably that number two guy. But Aaron Long gets hurt all the time. It is rare to find a time where he is not hurt at some point throughout the year. Now he's coming off an Achilles injury, so that will leave him out until 2022. Will that be enough time to make up ground on whoever the center back partnership is? Will that be enough time? I don't know. Burhalter likes him. That much is clear, but <laughs> he doesn't stay healthy. We talked about this with Jimmy Garoppolo when we were talking about the 2021 NFL Draft. The best ability is... That was the part you're supposed to say. Availability. Okay? That's what Aaron Long is. You see the same thing with Jordan Morris, who's been hurt a crap ton of times throughout his career and just got a knee injury again while playing alone for Swansea. So these guys who were in contention to be key players for the United States are hurt. So that makes it hard to say that they will be the guy that plays next to John Brooks. Then you got Walker Zimmerman, who I don't know if Greg Berhalter rates necessarily too highly. At the MLS, he's a great defender, but he doesn't really play a lot for the United States men's national team. You've seen the likes of Richards, McKenzie, Long play above him in the national team. I think he values his leadership, but I don't think he likes him on the national team. That doesn't take away from him being a good defender, but for the national team, he has had some... Yeah. He's rotated Walker Zimmerman more than the other center backs he's had, if that makes sense. Matt Miazga is another one in there as well. Tim Ream can play center back, but he's left-footed, so maybe you'd probably do that in a back three versus a back two. James Sands is also in there. It's literally the field. (laughs) We don't know who is going to be that other center back. But based off performances, not just the goals, based off performances, and no other center back, in my opinion, for the United States has played this well in a tournament. Aaron Long had a great 2020, geez, 2019 Gold Cup, but Miles Robinson's performances in this Gold Cup were insane. And I think right now Miles Robinson is starting next to John Brooks. I think the bat, the starting lineup for the United States, and I have a video planned, so I'm not going to give away everything, like the full squad or everything, but their front, their starting 11 that I think Burhalter would go with if the World Cup started tomorrow would be Zach Steffen in net, Dest on the right, Anthony Robinson on the left, John Brooks and Miles Robinson center back. Then you got Tyler Adams in holding midfield, McKenney and Pulisic in midfield because this gives Pulisic the freedom to move around a lot more. If you look at like his heat maps when he plays for the United States, a lot of it is central. Now, if you're playing the 3-4-3, then Pulisic plays out the left. But if you're playing a, three, a 4-3-3, Pulisic should probably play in the midfield even though it's not his natural position. It just gets him on the ball a lot more. And then a front three of Rain on the right, Zardes on the in the center, and then Brendan Aronson on the left. If you look at recent performances for the United States, Brendan Aronson really has locked down that left side spot. Even though, oddly enough, he plays in midfield and Pulisic plays on the left for club level, those roles will plop, probably flip for the United States. Aronson's played great for Red Bull Salzburg under Jesse Marsh. Pulisic the best player the United States has to offer. Him and Weston McKinney, I guess you can make arguments for either one. I know Weston McKinney's had a great season with Juventus. But Pulisic in midfield, Brendan Aronson on the left, is fun. I I I am for seeing that, even though that's not their natural positions at club level. It will work. 
because Brendan Aronson has played very well there on the left side for the United States. So that's what I would do, or what I think Greg Berhalter will do, going for the 2022 World Cup, and I am excited. We are a little over a year away, we're about 400-something days away. World Cup starting in November, which is, you know, awesome. Kind of love FIFA, right? <laughs> kind of love, love how not corrupt FIFA is. How just they are. Ah, man. All about human soccer for all, right? Yeah, soccer for everyone. Unless you can't pay for it. Then, then it's not soccer for everybody. But hey, but on the face of it, organization, we're cool guys. We like to have a good time, and we want to be your friend. To your face. Not behind your back, but that's what FIFA is. And we are having a World Cup in Qatar. <sighs> Jeez. Ridiculous. <laughs> this World Cup is a freaking joke on the face of it. But it's still a World Cup. You know you're going to watch it. And hopefully, but I'm acting like the United States is already in. They're not. So I need to tone my expectations down. I never thought I'd need to say that. But after what happened in 2018... I've got I to gotta hold my expectations to a certain level so I don't get too excited and the U.S. ends up shitting the bed against Trinidad and Tobago or Panama in World Cup qualifying and don't make it. If this team does not make it to a World Cup, this is a way bigger failure than the one in 2018. Way bigger. But I don't think that'll happen. Greg Berhalter has won two finals as manager of the United States. Yeah, Greg Berhalter, I think his doubters or his haters or whatever you want to call them are a little bit silenced. He was the fastest manager in United States history, 25 wins, and now he's won two trophies in a year against Mexico. Tata Martina, who is Mexico's manager, is probably going to get sacked. Or if he hasn't, I haven't really been checking up on it, but I'm assuming he's going to get sacked. You could be the worst coach ever. But if you can beat your rivals, you'll keep in, you'll be in the job longer. Great example is Paul Rhodes at Iowa State. That dude sucked, but he beat Iowa. So that's what kept Paul Rhodes in the job at Iowa State. Tata Martino is not beating. He's lost two finals to the United States. And this one's worse than the Nations League because the United States brought a C-plus to B-minus team to Mexico's pretty much A team, apart from a few players. But it's pretty much their A-team. No Ochoa, no Lozano, no Raul Jimenez. But it's still a very good team compared to what the United States had. At least you had Hector Moreno, Hector Herrera. At least you had these guys, Jesus Corona. The United States didn't have anybody. <laughs> they didn't leave, bring Pulisic, McKinney, Reyna, Adams, Brooks. They didn't bring any of them. It was all backups. And this tournament was so much better than what, anticip what was anticipated. And now the United States has more questions than answers, which is a good thing. You'd like to have these problems where there's a lot of good players. A lot of good players. This is a great problem to have. It's a terrible problem if the United States sucked this tournament and didn't know what they were going to fill out the rest of their squad with. But now that they've had this tournament, you have questions of the starting goalie, the backup right back, who's starting at center back. You have these questions. The starting nine, who's the best number nine the United States has? These are the questions you need to have because then if you don't have these and Stefan's unchallenged, maybe his form drops off. Maybe this motivates him a little bit more or gets better performance out of him, which again, he hasn't done anything bad for the United States to this point. So yeah, it's exciting. 
It's very exciting. You don't want to overhype it. You don't want to... Yeah, you don't, you don't want to miss the World Cup again. I, that's just the that's the main thing we're tar- we're trying to figure out here. Just don't miss the World Cup. World Cup qualifying starts in September, I think, which is ironically the same time as college football starts. We are back in football time tomorrow night, Thursday night. We have actual pro football. Oh my goodness, it is here. The Dallas Cowboys versus the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now, I know a lot of you out there don't like those teams. Surprisingly, we had a lot of those fans in Iowa because Iowa's, we don't have a team. <laughs> you don't even have a minor league team to cheer for. You just kind of cheer for whoever your dad cheers for. And if not that, you cheer for whoever's good. That's usually the mindset of Iowa. Or you're a Steelers fan because they have the same uniforms as the Iowa Hawkeyes. That's pretty much it. Man, who cares who's playing? Who cares if it's just the Hall of Fame game? It's football. And I think there's something of we're going to have football every week of the rest of the year until February. Is that right? There's going to be at least some sort of football on every single week. The greatest sport of all time. Now, that's obviously being a biased American. I can understand that. It's not the best sport in the world because the best sport of the world or the most popular sport in the world is soccer. And then I'd probably say basketball is right after that. And then baseball. And then football is somewhere at the bottom. Which is just, remind. remember we talked about after England lost the Euro final to Italy? <laughs> it was a vintage sport. Rest of the world plays it. Be bad at it. And then keep the cycle. The United States is inventive sport. No one else plays it. World champs. <laughs> that's, that's the best way to do it right there. Vintage sport, make sure no one else plays it. That way you never lose. There's obviously some form of football. There, Canada's got their own little football thing. NFL Europe, I think, is trying to make a comeback. Or there's some European league kicking off soon. The USFL's trying to come back. I, spring football's lost on me now. After sitting through the AAF and sitting through the XFL and sitting through spring FCS college football, I am fine if spring football never exists again. I can pass the time with other sports. I can do other things than watch football. I got the draft to work on. <laughs> That's That takes up 90% of my time. I don't want to watch the XFL or the AF. And I mean, I will. I won't enjoy it, but I will because I'm a sucker. And that's the whole reason why these things exist. Because <laughs> they know people are going to watch it. Until about week three. And then people start going, man, this is pretty ass. <laughs> I don't want to watch this anymore. And then the league ultimately folds. And the XFL had a great excuse of COVID, but they were going to fold regardless. I think we all saw that one coming. The AAF sucked. XFL lasted probably what? was going to last two weeks longer than the AAF, something like that. And now it's going to try and come back again in 2022. Good Lord, I'm not ready for this. USFL and the XFL back. I I don't know when the USFL is back. So I should not say that because I don't know exactly when that thing starts. But in regards to college football, which in Iowa is your religion, pretty much. If you're not a religious person, college football is the closest thing you have. You go to your church, which is your football stadium or your couch or whatever. You get with the congregation, the people in the stadium or the people you're hanging out with to watch the game. You read the sacred texts, the programs or the stats before or after the games. You listen to the preacher, Gary Dolphin, or John Walters, or whoever, Gary Rima, whoever you're listening to. 
And you're all there for the same thing. To watch and praise your team. That's that's what, if you're putting it in terms like that, yes. If you're not religious, college football is religion in the state of Iowa. And Iowa and Iowa State are going to be exciting teams this year. More of the fact we don't really know what Iowa is. We have a general idea of what Iowa State is, which makes things very, very exciting. Iowa State, throughout my lifetime, and I shouldn't say throughout my lifetime, throughout their history, they have sucked. (laughs) It's not just through my lifetime. It is throughout history, Iowa State has been bad at football. They've had great players. Troy Davis, one of the greatest running backs in college football history, on terrible teams. Terrible. Now, they're competing for things. Maybe not national championships or the soon-to-be defunct Big 12 or whatever they're calling the new Pac-12 Big 12 conferences they're trying to get a merger across. They're going to be good. They brought back, what, 11 starters on offense, like nine starters on defense? They are going to be good. Brock Purdy's back. Brees Hall's back. Charlie Kohler's back. Matt Campbell's back. Like, Iowa State fans have every right to be excited this year. Every right to be excited. And Iowa fans, you're watching Iowa State, and you're starting to get this feeling that you never thought before. Most Iowa fans out there, I would say. You're starting, you're looking at that team and go, wow, they are very fun to watch. Which is not just Iowa fans. Even Iowa State fans have said that. <laughs> they're actually fun to watch. Iowa's not. Iowa is very boring. Unless you're a die, die, die hard Iowa fan, you cannot tell me that is fun football. That is miserable. Brian Ferentz can't coach his way out of a paper bag, let alone call an offense. That's the problem. And then to come out on a press conference and go, oh, well, our quarterback's not ready, even though I designed 50 pass plays for him, even though he's not ready, which I guess in hindsight, fair enough, Brian. Fair enough. You said he's not ready, so you threw the ball 50 times. That way he gets ready. I I see your logic there, Brian. I see the logic there. Ugh, jeez. For Iowa fan or Iowa football's sake, I hope Peters is good. I've kind of come to the point now, I think not going to Iowa kind of changed my perspective of things to where when I was a kid, and even in high school, I was a diehard Iowa Hawkeye fan. You know, nothing you can really say to me will get through. Since I went to William Penn and you and I, I think it would have been worse if I was allowed to go to Iowa football games every single weekend. But since I'm not, and I would work you and I football games, I'm kind of trying to take a step back, and especially since I started hosting a show of where I don't want to be overly biased. I can't, I'll be biased from time to time. I'll be really biased with Josh Allen. I'll be biased with the Bills. I'll be biased with my teams, but I try not to be. It just comes out sometimes. I think I can be the least biased with Iowa, because I didn't go there, and I don't want to be, I mean, it's inevitable, I don't want to be that you and I graduate that's an Iowa fan, but that's inevitable, again, because I had 18 years before college of being an Iowa fan, and three more years after that, to where I was not at you and I, I was at William Penn, In high school, I was an Iowa fan. So about 20 years, 20 to 21 years, Iowa fan. And then I go to UNI for two years, and all of a sudden it's like, it's sacrilege if I support Iowa over UNI, even though they're in two different levels of college football. 
I don't really get that argument that much. Maybe it's because of the fact I'm an Iowa fan that went to UNI. But at, when I first went there, I'll never forget. I had, we were going to go to the Iowa UNI game. And my roommates at the time, Jared, Andrew, and Steven, we were all going to go. Jared and Andrew and I were sitting down in the basement. We were talking about going to this game, what you're going to wear to the game. I was like, what? They were talking about wearing Iowa stuff. I was like, what? We go to UNI. We can't cheer on UNI. And then as the day got closer that we were going to go to the game, I was like, I can't do it. I've cheered for Iowa for 21, 2021 years. And now because I've gone to UNI for a month, I should drop all ties and go to cheer on, cheer on UNI. Now, if I went to Iowa State, that would be a little different. Iowa and you and I are not rivals on any sport. Iowa State and you and I are rivals. <laughs> not so much anymore, but football, that game was always close growing up. This year, I think Iowa State should trounce them. That's just what I think is going to happen. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't get it anymore of the, you went to you and I, or you went to this school, you have to be a fan of this school, even though you went four years there and supported another team your entire life. Now, if you played for said team, I understand that. Then, yeah, go all in on Iowa or Iowa State or you and I, whoever team you play for, that's your favorite team. No matter what, you have ties with that team. I just went to you and I. I wasn't a part of any clubs. I wasn't a part of a team. I just went there because I had an opportunity to work for ESPN. That was it. That was really the only reason I went to you and I. I had an ESPN3 connection up there, so I went. And I'm thankful I did because I loved every second I was at UNI. Had, and my roommates were also a big reason why I moved up there as well. They tried to convince me for, it felt like a year, trying to go up to UNI. Because they were all transferring. Jared and Steven were transferring. Andrew was already up there. They are like, oh, we got to go to UNI. But I didn't go there to be a part of a team. I didn't go there to be a part of a, a club. I d- the thing I was there for was really supposed to be neutral. ESPN3. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just naive or an idiot or something. I I can be wrong. I'm always open to being wrong. But that's one thing that I've never really understood since I made those first arguments with Jared and Andrew back when we were juniors in college. Because once you get to that moment, you're like, I'm cheering for you and I. I'm cheering for you and I. I'm cheering for you and I. And he can't. Now, this is completely different for basketball. I've already talked about I've never really been a massive Iowa Hawkeye basketball fan. I've never been to an Iowa basketball game my entire life. Never done it. Mostly because of the fact they played on stupid nights and I had soccer practice. That was pretty much the main reason why we didn't go, but never really supported them. I supported Drake, UCLA, North Carolina, Georgetown, Iowa, obviously. You and I. Like, I supported... The big three schools, <laughs> three of the four big schools in Iowa, Drake, you and I in Iowa. So I could cheer for you and I in basketball. I can cheer for you and I in anything else pretty much. Football is different. At least to me. It might not be different for other people, but it is different to me. And I will be cheering on. I cheer on you and I every time they're not played Iowa. They're not competing for the same things. If you and I beat Iowa, that kills Iowa's season. If you and I beat, if Iowa beats you and I, you and I doesn't even drop in the rankings. If it's a close game, they move up in the rankings, even though if they lost. That was the two years ago thing against Iowa State. They moved up the rankings, almost take, or took them to overtime. Almost beat them. Probably should have beat them. So hopefully Iowa State, for their fans' sake, don't come out of the gate slow this year because the past two years, 
They've come out really slow. They lost Louisiana last year, almost lost you and I two years ago. They cannot come out of the gate slow. They have to come out like they're going for the Big 12 title, like we all expect them to be. And I hope, for their sake, they don't do an Iowa and have one good year and they go completely back to average the year after with pretty much the same team. Iowa was fam- is, is famous for doing that. They did it with Stansy McNutt. They went to the Orange Bowl, Insight Bowl the next year, 8-5. and five. They went to the Rose Bowl with C.J. Beathard, brought pretty much the same team back. What was the bowl game they went to after that? <laughs> what bowl was that? Not the Rose Bowl, because for some reason I'm just completely... I can't remember at all what bowl game they went to that year. Was it the... Wow. I really can't remember. I don't think it was the Gator Bowl. Is that even a thing anymore? I don't know. Whatever. Point is, I hope for their sake they don't do that. But for Iowa State and for Iowa, they do have some players, some really talented players, that can make the jump to the next level. And that's how I'm going to try and segue this. (laughs) It's kind of a forced segue, but a segue nonetheless. I've talked about this for about a month now. I feel like for a month. I've been trying to compile rankings for the 2022 NFL Draft. As we are pretty much a month... Okay, when the show comes out on August 4th, we will be a month away from Iowa State and UNI and Iowa versus Indiana. We'll be a month away exactly. September 4th is when those two teams, or those four teams play. So I'm not doing the full prospect rankings because defensive players are a little bit harder to rank than offensive players because I played offense. So I can I think I know how to scout them a little bit better than defensive players. But we're gonna wait off on the defensive thing. And we're a little we got like Around 10 minutes to go. I'll probably go probably 20 minutes longer. But, yeah. We'll go offensive players first. Defensive players Friday. And then Monday, we'll release the first official preseason 2022 NFL draft. That's I was thinking about this in the bathroom. <laughs> right before I started recording this. I went upstairs to the bathroom. I was like, how the hell am I going to do this? Because my list isn't how I want it. I want to tinker tinker with it a little bit more. Which could ultimately screw the list in general. <laughs> it could completely trash the list. But I want it to be as close to perfect as possible. I think I've got the mock draft pretty much done. I need to type up the wording for everything. Get all the players picked. Or not the players picked. Get the descriptions down for each player. And why I think that team fits what... Or that player fits the team's needs. But yeah, today, offense, defense, Friday, draft, Monday. Okay? Sound good? Perfect. And I'm going to be comparing and contrasting with some... Because you do... Like, you you do this a lot when you're doing work. You like to see what other people are doing. So you go, oh, is this a ridiculous take? Oh, it's not? And if sometimes it is, like, oh, it is? <laughs> I know. I mean, that hurts a little bit, but I'm going to stand by my opinions. So I've got, obviously, you know, the Holy Bible, Phil Steele's 2021 College Football Preview next to me. And he does his own pre-draft rankings or pre-season rankings of this amazing book if you want to get it i would highly recommend it's the greatest thing ever invented get it every single year so you know when i was talking about college football can be a religion to people this is the bible (laughs) phil Steele's 2021 college football preview is the bible whatever year it is this is what you get it's like the new living translation the king's james version i don't know what niv stands for 
But this is whatever verse this you can get like the lilies, I think's the other one, the other big one that makes college football previews. But Phil Steele's is the main one. This is the only one you see people brag about that they got. Other people get, you know, preview books. You'll get them at Walgreens or Barnes and Noble or something. You never see people post pictures of that on social media. It's always Phil Steele, only Phil Steele. Because it's how many pages is this stupid thing? It's a lot of pages. 352 pages of college football stuff that most of it you probably don't even care about because you only really care about your team. But for a nerd and a loser like myself, this is perfect. So starting off, obviously, with the quarterbacks, I have 20 quarterbacks ranked. 20. Because we've been doing quarterback rankings for the better part of three months, I feel like. So I've got a list pretty much down. It's easier to rank the quarterbacks than everything else. One, because I played it. Two, because again, we've done it for a long time now. It's not something new that I've just had to come up with today. Oh no, I got to do something now. But I've got my list here. I've got Phil Steele's book next to me. He ranks 75. Okay? I'm not that smart. I do not know how to rank... I don't know. Like, Adrian Martinez. I, I don't know what to do with Adrian Martinez. I don't even... He's not even near my list, and Phil Steele has him ranked... Where'd he go? I just lost him. 49th. I, I, I don't have any 49 quarterbacks to think of, 50 quarterbacks to think of. I could probably name them, but not put them out in a draft order, like how I would draft them. But starting off, number one, I have a 1A, 1B, and I think that's how most people have it. If you see something different, I'd be pretty surprised of Spencer Rattler, Sam Howell. In some capacity, those two are number one and two. If Sam Howell's one, fine. If Spencer Rattler's one, that's fine too. They bring two totally different things in regards to the world of scouting. And I'll explain why. Spencer Rattler, and if you listen to the show long enough, I think you understand where I'm, I think you know where I'm going with this. Spencer Rattler has a lot higher ceiling than Sam Howell. But as far as college career goes, Sam Howell's had the better career. Sam Howell's a lot more consistent than Spencer Rattler, which is a thing that might be a negative as well as a positive because you know what you're getting from Sam Howell. But that also might mean his ceiling might be a little bit lower than Spencer Rattler's. We don't know what Spencer Rattler is. And Spencer Rattler is undeniably more talented than Sam Howell. But Sam Howell's very consistent. This year will be big for Howell because he lost four of his key players from out wide, Daz Newsom. And Chad, Diami Brown and Chaz Newsom. I, I was blanking for a little bit. And then Michael Carter and Javante Williams, the running backs. Those are four huge players. All of them get drafted this past year from North Carolina. That's that's impressive. And Sam Howell is as equal for their success as they are for his. But this is huge for him this year. He's the best quarterback in the ACC. If he has a great year this year, and Spencer Rattler has some of the inconsistencies that we saw at the early stages last year, Howell might be the number one quarterback. But if Rattler does not have the inconsistencies and you see some of that raw talent that he has, then it's clear that he's the number one quarterback. A lot of people in Iowa don't like Spencer Rattler, especially Iowa State fans. He does, I will say this, does have a pretty punchable face. I will say that, I will admit that, but he is a great quarterback with a great skill set. We'll see if it all translates at the next level. Number three, Oh, and uh, Phil Steele has those two, number one and two, unsurprisingly. Number three, I have Malik Willis. You guys should know how much I love Malik Willis. 
His skill set is ridiculous. Absolute cannon for an arm. He's the fastest quarterback in this draft class by far. Similar to Michael Vick. The arm strength is a good thing and a bad thing. The arm strength, he can zip that ball all over the field with effortless. Like, it's whoop, flip of the wrist, gone. Spencer Rattler's the same thing. But Willis can overthrow receivers and try to put balls in a lot tighter windows than what he probably should. And it caused the ball to float on him a little bit. Which is, you know, not positive as floating footballs is not great. But as far as natural skill set, there's not a better quarterback in this class than Malik Willis. He can do everything every other quarterback can do. Everybody. He can do it. The, the small college thing is starting to die off a little bit. I don't think it really matters anymore where you come from. As you look at the last few drafts, you had Trey Lance and Zach Wilson drafted this year from BYU and North Coast State. Josh Allen was drafted from Wyoming. You had Jordan Love drafted from Utah State. Like, the small college quarterback is not a hindrance anymore. The school size doesn't matter. If you can play, you can play. And Phil Steele has JT Daniels as his number three quarterback, which I don't... I'm struggling to buy into the hype right now because I'm getting very vivid Josh Rosen vibes. Very strong Josh Rosen vibes. Can't move for shit. Skinnier quarterback, hyped forever. And gets hurt a lot. So I'm concerned about that with JT Daniels. But moving on, number four for him is Carson Strong. Mine, and I've thought about changing this a little bit. And I think I am. I think I am. Four for me is Desmond Ritter. And he has a similar order to what I've got. Just slipped around a little bit. Desmond Ritter is similar, very similar style quarterback to Trey Lance. Bigger dude, 6'4", about 215. Physical runner with a cannon for an arm. But his accuracy is all over the place. All over the place. He had a season, his freshman year, it was 66. His sophomore year, was 55. We're talking completion percentage. And his last year was 62. So if we're going on patterns here, he's about to drop down back to the 50s. And if he drops back down to the 50s, he ain't going to be a top five quarterback of this draft class. He's not. But his skill set and his rawness is similar to that of Trey Lance. And I think they could build something there. He's working with Jordan Palmer. Jordan Palmer is the quarterback coach that worked with Josh Allen. And if he can turn Josh Allen into something... He can turn anybody into anything. So Desmond Ritter is number four for me. And then Carson Strong is number five. Carson Strong, ironically, has a very strong arm. (laughs) Very strong arm. I compared him to Matthew Stafford a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, probably a little over a month now, when we did the quarterback comparison thing. Bigger quarterback, a little more slender build, but cannon arm. He said earlier that he wanted to complete like 85% of his pass or something. If he does that, he's going number one overall. Good Lord. If you can complete 85% of your passes with his skill set, goodness gracious. Now, he's not the most fleet-footed quarterback. So he's no JT Daniels where he's going to get sacked if you just look at him. If you make eye contact with JT Daniels, you're pretty much guaranteed a sack because he ain't running anywhere. He's like negative 250 yards rushing in his college career. Ridiculous numbers. But Georgia, as a whole... There's some big expectations for Georgia this year, and we'll get, we'll get to JT in a little bit. Number six, Keaton Slovis. We've switched up the rankings a little bit. Keaton Slovis, I really like. I really like Keaton Slovis, but we're talking about pro prospects here. I'd probably rank him down a little bit further. I love Keaton Slovis. He's a very accurate quarterback, 
But at times last year, which from what I heard, or what I saw, not heard, I don't talk to people, was an arm injury. So he had a little bit of inconsistencies from that aspect. He's a little smaller too. He's about 6'2", probably 210, maybe, compared to the other quarterbacks in this class. If you look at the smaller quarterbacks, like Willis and Rattler, who are 6'1", about 205, 210, somewhere around there. So similar size to, Jay, to Keaton Slovis. Other than accuracy, Slovis cannot do anything that these guys do. That's why he's a little bit lower than these guys. Rattler and Willis have crazy arm talent. Slovis does not. That's not shouldn't be a hindrance on him. Joe Burrow didn't have the greatest arm in the world either. And he put together the greatest season any quarterback's ever had in college football history. So, I saw a thing the other day, random tidbit. I saw a thing the other day, it was like, facts, college football fans are not ready to admit. Chase Young was the best player in college football in 2019. No, he wasn't. (laughs) Or 20, yeah, 2019. No, he was not. He was not. Joe Burrow had the greatest season any quarterback's ever had. Chase Young did not have the greatest season any defender's ever had. So that argument at that point is done. <laughs> I, it's done and dusted. Joe Burrow broke almost every passing record ever <laughs> that season. Won a national championship game. Won a natty. Was the coolest person on the field at all times as well. Chase Young, great. Great NFL player as well. Great college player. Not the best player in college football at any point. It was always Joe Burrow that season. Always. Not even a question. But Daniel, the problem is, I don't think Slovis has that type of swagger that Joe Burrow has. But he's very accurate. Him and Burrow are very similar in regards to accuracy. But in regards to natural talent, the other quarterbacks I've listed above him have more of that, I guess. And I hope Keaton Slovis can move up this list again because I really like him. He has a great skill set, just not compared to the other guys. There's things other people do in this draft class, like the five I mentioned before, that do things that scouts and coaches look at more. Or more more owners and GMs look at. The big arm, bigger quarterbacks, ad-libbers, extremely fast or athletic. Slovis is not that. If, you look, if I just can give something more, Rattler has more arm talent. Hal has a stronger arm. Willis, other than accuracy, does everything better. Desmond Ritter, more athletic, stronger arm. Carson Strong, stronger arm, bigger quarterback. So that's kind of the thing that hurt Slovis in that regard, but he could definitely move up. Number seven, JT Daniels. Like I said before, I don't really buy into all the JT Daniels hype. I need to see some things first. He hasn't played a ton of college football. He had a really weird freshman season. Like USC was not very good. He was not very good. He eventually lost the starting job after getting hurt to Keaton Slovis. And then his dad said he's not transferring because he got a USC tattoo on his body. And then he ends up transferring. Talk about awkward. But there's some big expectations for Georgia this year. If they're going to upset Alabama, this is the year that everybody's expecting them to do it. But I think we're also forgetting that it's Alabama. This isn't like some tinier school where if you lose a five-star, you're, oh, wow, what are we going to do now? How are we going to place this guy? Nope. You got other five-stars waiting in the wing. You lost Trevor Lawrence for Clemson. DJ Uagalele is right behind him. Five-star quarterback. He lost Mac Jones. Oh, no, what are we going to do? A more talented quarterback who is a five-star who's compared to Russell Wilson and Kyler Murray. Like, it's not a big hindrance for Alabama to lose a bunch of five-stars. 
you lost a lot of great players. Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddell, Mac Jones, Najee Harris, Patrick Sertan, but you don't think Alabama can replace them? That's the beauty of Alabama football and why a lot of people hate them because they can recruit the shit out of people. But yeah, this is the year that Georgia's supposed to do that, so we'll see. They got a couple really good... We got a few really nice players on there. JT Daniels, uh, Zamir White, we'll talk about in a little bit. Adam Anderson, the defensive end for them, or outside linebacker for them. George Pickens. We'll talk about all those players. (laughs) Well, talk about Armstrong or Anderson Friday. Not today, because he's a defender. Number eight, we have Matt Corral. I've moved... I flipped Jaden Daniels and Matt Corral around. If Matt Corral goes off this year, which he definitely could, he could skyrocket up this draft board. Skyrocket. Because in regards to skill set, he's very similar to a lot of people in the top five. If we're going off just skill set, he's probably top three. But you can't have two games to throw 11 interceptions and be ranked in the top three. So he's ranked at number eight. But he could definitely go off. He's got a quarter, a coach, very quarterback-friendly coach in Lane Kiffin. He could go off. And I, I'd be ready to sit there and watch that because he'd be really fun. Jane Daniels, number nine. I'm trying to go a little bit slower or a little bit faster with these quarterbacks because we talked about him a crap ton. Very athletic quarterback. Smaller quarterbacks, about 185 pounds. Bean pole. Has great games in college football. Played against Oregon very, very well. Beat Justin Herbert when he was a fresh, true freshman. I really like Jaden Daniels as well. And then number 10, Phil Yurkovic from Boston College. Very similar to young big Ben Roethlisberger. Surprisingly sneaky. Well, not Yeah, surprisingly. Pretty athletic. Pretty pretty athletic for a guy as big as he is. Yeah, transfer from Notre Dame only really has one year under his belt at Boston College. We'll see how he does this year. Other quarterbacks I'm going to mention, I'm not going to give away the rest of the order now, but Emory Jones is someone that I think is going to get talked about a lot. He's never played consistently for Florida. He had Felipe Franks and then Kyle Trask get around. Now he's the guy. A lot of people are expecting a lot of things from Emory Jones. I don't really know what to expect from him. He could be awesome. He could also be ass. You have to live in both realities here. And then you got Brock Purdy, Dorian Thompson-Robinson, an awesome quarterback as well from UCLA. But those are what I've got right now. We're just going to go over the top 10 for that. I'm going to try and speed it up a little bit more because I'm tired and I'm trying to end the show a little bit earlier because I haven't getting a lot. I've complained about this, I think, every single show, but I don't get a lot of sleep. So I'm trying to I'm trying to rectify that. Uh, running backs. Similarly to the quarterbacks, and you'll find this very consistently in the first two position, or first three position groups. This one's a joint top two. Uh, Brees Hall and Isaiah Spiller. If you look at just stats, you probably would, probably would just go, it's clear it's Brees Hall. The carry thing is big here. Very big. The amount of carries Brees Hall gets, the amount of times he gets hit, could scare away some teams from him. That's my opinion on it. And I think that's how teams will view him. Great college running back. Amazing running back. I mean, there's no denying that. He'll be a second-round pick at the lowest, unless he destroys his knee or something. Knock on wood, we don't need that to happen. But him and Isaiah Spiller, one and two, I've talked about that for a while. I don't need to go into too much detail because I've said what I need to say about them in past shows. Number three, Kyron Williams from Notre Dame, the best receiving back in this draft class. Dude went off 
for Notre Dame last year. I don't remember exactly the stats. I've got good thing I've got Phil Steele's 2021 college football preview in front of me because I could just go back and go whoopow. Uh, one more whoopow. And look, that Kieran Williams had 1,100 rushing yards last year with 13 touchdowns with 313 receiving yards. Really fun running back. Really like Kyron Williams. Like him. Kennedy Brooks is number four on this list, and you might not remember Kennedy Brooks because he didn't play last year. He was one of the famous opt-outs from last season. The years before, back-to-back 1,000-yard rusher at Oklahoma. Now, without, without playing, will he fall off a lot going into this season? Will he have a lot of rust? Or will he be perfectly fine and go into the season like he never missed a beat and just dominate like he did when he was originally playing at Oklahoma. And then at number five, this is one I don't, I don't really, I haven't really talked about that much. You might not hear his name because, you know, I'm a big time scout like that. I can go and find these people and I, I know everything. But now I gotta find the list because I can't remember what his yards were. I didn't write down the yards. I'm trying to go and Phil Steele's thing to find the, the amount of yards these dudes had because... Quarterbacks, I have that stuff down, but the running backs need to work out a little bit and memorize the yards a little more. It's Jerrion Ely, the running back for Ole Miss. 745 yards last year, nine touchdowns. He also put together 155 yards receiving. When an offense like Ole Miss's, you're not going to get a lot of targets out of the backfield. You look at the team, their top guys, Elijah Moore, who was drafted the second round by the New York Jets, uh, he had a few catches. Let's put it like this. He had a lot of catches. He had 86 catches, Isaiah Moore. Or Elijah Moore. Elijah Moore. Sorry, 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 sorry. Elijah Moore. 86 catches, 1,100 yards. You're not going to get a lot of catches out of the backfield with Elijah Moore there, who has been one of the more consistent wide receivers in college football up until that point. And then he got drafted in the second round. This year, I think Jerion Ely's numbers in the receiving game will go up because of the fact they don't have an Elijah Moore anymore. But they're going to throw the ball. I hope Jerion Ely gets his carries, though. The only issue, really, is the fact that he's only 5'8". 5'8", So the fact that he is that big will go, ah, can we really have a running back that small be our featured back? Can we do that? And then I point to 2020 draft, where we have Clattery Jalaire, who is 5'7". 5'7", 5'8", somewhere around there. But yeah, that's what I've got so far for the running backs. I've got 10, but I'm trying to give you some suspense. Like, I'll give you half the list. And then you look at the rest of your list yourself and then complain about it to me later. But I did 10 quarterbacks, because we did 20. I did 10 running backs, 10 wide. Every position's got 10. Every position. So we've got quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers, tight ends, tackles, interior off to linemen, D linemen, which is more interior D linemen, but. That one's, it's, it gets kind of in fuzzy territory with D-line and edge rushers because you have edge rushers that play on the D-line, so that's kind of an issue we got there. But then linebackers, corners, and safeties. And then I'm going to put together a top 50 players after that. So stay tuned for that. But other running backs that you might see on the list, we'll just name one of them. Muhammad Ibrahim from Minnesota. Great year last year. Was Minnesota's entire offense last year. With Tanner Morgan struggling, and the pass offense pretty be, pretty much being non-existent, Muhammad Ibrahim had to be the offense, which saw Rashad Bateman's draft stock, in my opinion, raise because it made him a better run blocker. So yeah, just one running back. There's other running backs on there, obviously. And I'm not, he's not number six either. So 
Use your imagination wherever he is. I guess you'll see this when the show comes out. Wide receivers, another 1A, 1B thing. Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson from Ohio State. C.J. Stroud, the new quarterback for Ohio State, replacing Justin Fields. Those are big shoes to fill at Ohio State. And he's going reg- to... I'm nervous for C.J. Stroud this year. And it's not because of what's going to go on the field this year. It's going to go on what happens next year with Quinn Ewers. The number one rated high school quarterback ever is coming in. Who just opted out of his senior year of high school, pretty much, to enroll in Ohio State early. And he is going to challenge that starting spot. It's a similar situation to that of Trevor Lawrence and Kelly Bryant. Unless C.J. Stroud throws for an insane amount of yards, which he definitely should when you have these two receivers, and Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave. Quinn Ewers is going to come in and challenge. So look out for that (laughs) because he might look like Joba from Brockhampton, but he can obviously play the position. (laughs) Oh, man. That's going to be fun to watch, but C.J. Stroud should have a great year. Master Teague and a couple other good running backs back there, Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson. Then you got Jeremy Ruckert as well, the tight end. You've got some good pieces to succeed as a young quarterback. Thayer Munford at tackle, like, he should have a great year. But back to the wide receivers. Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson, I think you can flip a coin pretty much. If you're going for best route runner, give that to Garrett Wilson. Best deep threat, and I'd say hands, Chris Olave. If you look at the stats, Chris Olave had seven more receptions and six more yards and one more touchdown. Like, they are neck and neck in pretty much everything, especially when it comes to the 2022 NFL draft. These are the top two guys in the draft. Pretty much unanimously. You might see an odd receiver in there every once in a while, but 99% of the time, I can promise you, you would see Chris Olave or Garrett Wilson at one or two. One and two. Not one or two. One and two. In whatever order, 1A, 1B. Number three, Traylon Burks. And I got a text when I did my first mock draft, which was kind of just randomly thrown together. And it was my friend Ryan who is a lifelong Arkansas Razorback fan. He's from Arkansas, big-time Razorback fan. Every time an Arkansas player is really good. Frank Ragnow was the last one on the Detroit Lions. He always texts me when he sees an Arkansas player. Like, oh, man, I was going to text you. I was going to be very mad at you. You Traylon Burke in your draft. Traylon Burke's in your draft. I did. And Traylon Burke's, in my opinion, is the third-best receiver in this draft class because of how big he is. Six foot three, about 230 pounds completely different wide receiver to everybody else in this draft class. I guess the only one you could really compare him to, I guess in just regards to size-wise, is that of Drake London. But we'll get to Drake London in a little bit. Or will we? Or will we wait to see this by ourselves? <laughs> Intriguing stuff here, Logan. But Traylon Burks, he's on a very bad team. Let's just say it without... Let's just not beat around the bush. I don't know what their quarterback situation is. It seems like K.J. Jefferson... Is going to start this season. Felipe Franks, obviously gone. He's the starting quarterback for, oh, just last year. Just last year. Because Trey, my dude, Kyle Trask, just started the starting job this year. But big dude. Absolutely big dude. For how athletic he is, for how big he is, like weight-wise, he got. I saw some comparison to A.J. Brown, which is very fair. A.J. Brown, one of the better receivers in the NFL. Traylon Burks could be just that. Could be definitely just that. John Mechie, I have at number four, speedster. 
John Mechie can fly. This is aw- He stepped up big time in the absence of Jalen Waddell. Got almost 1,000 yards last year, just behind, you know, about 900 yards. Double his yards, and he was behind <laughs> Devontae Smith. But dude can absolutely fly. Dude can fly. I'm sorry I'm not going too in-depth with all of these things. I'm trying to wrap up the show, but I've got two more positions, three more positions groups to go. I'm trying to hurry. Number five, Drake London, wide receiver from USC. Similarly to that of Traylon Burks, bigger dude. But instead of weight, he loses about 15 pounds, but he gains two inches. Six foot five, two fifteen. Athletic wide receiver. Last year, 505, geez, 502 yards and three touchdowns. 502 yards with three touchdowns. And like I said, Keaton Slovis had a little bit of arm trouble last year from what I remember. So once he gets those consist- gets some consistency back, Keaton Slovis and Drake London should be one of the best one-two tandems in all of college football. Should, I fully expect that. And then moving on to tight end, Jalen Weidermeyer from Texas A&M is pretty unanimous. I guess at the top of the tight end charts, I would be surprised if you saw more people or saw people without Jalen Weidermeyer at the top of the list, 506 yards, six touchdowns. And if you hear me like moving away from the microphones because I'm trying to read this, but I'm trying to contort my head to a way that it doesn't affect the, how it sounds, but I hear it in my headphones and my self-dibbing a little bit. Texas A&M's got some great players this year. Some absolute studs this year. We've already mentioned Isaiah Spiller. Now we've got Jalen Weidemeyer. We're going to talk about Jalen Gre- or Kenyon Green in a little bit. And then you got DeMarvin Leal, who we're going to talk about Friday. They've got a crap ton of really good players. they got a young quarterback this year, so we'll see how he does. But, man, Isaiah Spiller, K- Jalen Weidemeyer, Kenyon Green, DeMarvin Leal. Those are four great players, and all four of them are either number one or number two in their position rankings, depending on where you rank them. Because, again, like I said with the D-line and edge rusher thing, DeMarvin Leal technically plays D-end, and Kenyon Green technically plays tackle, but he has been playing guard for most of his college career. He just moved to tackle this offseason. Leal plays at D-end, but he's expected to be a three-tech in the NFL. Time will tell on that. I've got him in the D-line section, not the edge section, so we'll get to that Friday. Weidermeyer, then you got Jello Bingsley, Billingsley, jeez, receiver from wide receiver spot, or jeez, I'm struggling. I'm really struggling right now. Jaleel Billingsley, a receiver from the wide receiver spot. Jeez, I can't. Receiver from the tight end spot, 6'4", 230, smaller, right, smaller tight end. Similar to that of Kyle Pitts. Do I think he'll be the same as Kyle Pitts? No, but similar build. Probably need to work on his blocking a little bit. But great wide receiver from there. Cade Otten from Washington. Then we'll finish. We'll just finish this off. <laughs> Charlie Kohler and Jake Ferguson from Wisconsin round up the top five. Jeremy Ruckert's also on there. And then Colf Turner from Nevada, who has been one of, if not the biggest threat for Nevada down the field in regards to the red zone. Now, you've got Romeo Dubes there as well, the wide receiver. We'll talk about on, well, you'll hear him. You'll see him tomorrow, but yeah. Some good tight ends. I need to finish out the entire rankings of the tight ends. And then moving on to tackles, you've got Evan Neal, who's pretty consensus at number one, or pretty unanimous at the number one spot for the tackles. Monster dude. Plays for Alabama. Has been playing guard. Is switching out to tackle this year. Beast. Absolute be six foot seven, 360 pounds. And he does not move like he's that big. <laughs> he moves like he's six foot, 200 pounds. So he moves like me, pretty well. Oh, I'm 
Logan, you're telling yourself you're 200 now. Uh, Evan Neal's a beast. Evan Neal's the number one tackle in this draft, and he'll be a top five pick for sure. For sure. Then the rest of the order is kind of a wish wash of a bunch of, like, random. You could pretty much throw any tackle anywhere and be perfectly fine with it. But I'll just read them out pretty fast because, again, the tackle spot is the most, the one you'll see the most changes, I guess. You won't see a lot of similar things in the tackle spot. You see a lot of similar things in the running backs, the wide receivers, the quarterbacks. Tackles, you really won't. Because you've got a lot of tackles that have the potential to be first-round draft picks, but we know all of them won't be. So you got Jackson Kirkland, who I was my number two guy. He's the best pass-blocking tackle in this draft. Not the greatest athlete, but dude is a mauler at the tackle position. You got Zion Nelson from Miami. Thayer Munford, who we talked about a little bit ago at Ohio State. Charles Cross at Mississippi State. Rasheed Walker. Darian Kennard, who is a mixture of tackle and guard, so I have a far time trying to figure out exactly where I want to rank them. I'll probably, I'll figure it out before I post the thing. So you're probably seeing it, but as of right now, I don't have anything figured out. And then for the interior O-line, we have a mixture of, this one is, I, it's not a 1A, 1B situation. I think it's a difference of position because here's the thing. Though I have Tyler Lindebaum as the number one interior O-line prospect in this draft, I think Kenyon Green will get drafted first. The The reason behind that is the fact that Tyler Lindebaum is a center and Kenyon Green is a tackle-slash-guard hybrid. Guards and tackles, historically, get drafted a lot higher than centers. Historically. Like, there's, it's very rare you'll see a center draft in the top 15. Very rare. Let alone the top 10. Kenyon Green has a real shot of being drafted in the top 10. Tyler Lindebaum, though he is a better interior offensive lineman, will not get drafted in the top 10 purely based on the fact that he's a center. That's pretty much it. And then you got Ikem Ekwonwu from NC State. Mauler. That's the best word I can describe him as. Just an absolute mauler. Tackle, guard, hybrid. Pretty much similar thing to Kenyon Green. Then you got Darian Kennard. I have him here at the guard spot as well. Just because he's a big dude. But he's almost as big as Evan Neal. Let's just say this. He doesn't move like Evan Neal. But he's almost as big as him. That's that's where the guard thing comes into play. And then Donovan West from Arizona State is a very experienced center at Arizona State. And then you've got like Alec Lindstrom, whose brother plays for the Atlanta Falcons. Chris Lindstrom from Boston College. He's a center. Caden Mays from Tennessee. Jarrett Patterson, who plays pretty much everywhere on the offensive line. I think he plays tackle this year, but is expected to move to guard or center this next year. But yeah. Exciting times for the NFL draft. I'm sorry I didn't go too in depth. I'm I'm dying here. <laughs> I'm trying I'm trying super hard. I'll go I'll go back on this on Friday. So I'll recap what we talked about today, but I'll go more in depth because I'll I apologize for that. I'll do I'll do better <laughs> on Friday. I have the list done for the offensive side. Defense needs work. I'll have better reasoning for the offense when I come back on Friday because I didn't write anything down. I kind of was just like, let's go off memory. And then I realized, well, crap. I didn't. I should have just written stuff down. So I, it sounded a little off, I guess. So if you didn't like the show today, I can only apologize for that. I I thought it would be better. But that draft thing at the end kind of struggled. So I'm just tired. I'm sorry. That's, main, that's the main reason. I'll get back to bed. And we'll have a great show on Friday. So with that, I will see you all later. Hope you enjoyed it. Peace.